Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very quiet Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Adrian O'Hickey. Adrian is a senior partner at Origin Partners LLP, an award-winning UK Top 30 multidiscipline property and construction consultancy firm in Oxfordshire. Uh, Adrian, welcome. Great to have you with us on the programme today. Good afternoon. Nice to talk to you. Likewise, Adrian. Now, this podcast, first and foremost, is all about leadership and effective leadership at that. And this is coming under the microscope a huge amount uh, lately with uh, the COVID-19 outbreak and the fallout of that. Um, How has it been for yourselves in your industry attempting to navigate the last few weeks? Um, Well, clearly, I think it's unprecedented times. Um, We're obviously focused on the construction industry and I think it's well known that there has been some concern as to whether construction sites should maintain uh, being open um, or whether it's safe and whether it's safe to do so. Um, clearly the government have issued a, uh, a notice in the last couple of days that have clarified clarified matters but I think a lot of clients are still concerned as to whether it's morally and safe. Uh, to, to open sites. So that does give us a challenge um, to understand what's best for our clients and how we can uh, help them navigate their, their projects through the, the current situation. Absolutely. And um, the government's, of course, come under some criticism uh, for its approach to the uh, the outbreak um, in general. Um, we've seen that there were procedures in place, there was money there, but in many ways we were just sort of waiting to see what happens before implementing more stringent measures in more recent weeks with the lockdown coming into place. If we take that and compare that with the approach taken by China, for example, with Xi Jinping, where they put the country in lockdown quite quickly, um, it's a very different sort of approach. If we take that away from politics and time, times of crisis just for a moment as a business leader which sort of approach would you prefer to take when dealing with difficulties would you rather dive straight in get on top of the situation as soon as possible or would you tend to sort of take the Boris Johnson approach let things play out a bit and see how matters develop then take action from there well I think there's um, particularly with the COVID-19 there's a really interesting conflict if you like or tension between um, the sort of the natural reaction for health and safety, which would be to to stop, follow a, a China route and, and shut everything down. Whereas, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the commercial and the economic side of things, um, which actually says in the, in the longer term, one needs to have a healthy economy and do everything one can to support the economy. So when we come out the other side of it, we can actually look after people and look after their health and well-being at that time. So, there is this sort of this tension between which is the right right course of action and which is the wrong course of action. I think um, naturally, as a as a leader, one doesn't want to let the emotion of a crisis kind of uh, focus your mind on on necessarily just immediate reactions and lose sight of what's the, um, the probably the the longer term expectation and uh, objectives of where you want to, to get to. So it's, it is an interesting conflict and tension between all those sides of things. It is absolutely. And it really brings into the spotlight this need for a balance um, for leaders um, to be sort of proactive on the one hand, have plans in place and be really sort of take action themselves, but also have 
that ability to be reactive as well because guidelines change quite regularly and businesses do need to also be able to react to that. Oh, yeah, for sure. I and mean, certainly at Ridge, one of um, you know one of the things we pride ourselves on, part of the ethos of the company, is, is the agility in terms of how we support our clients um, and deliver our projects in you know, in normal time, shall we say? Yeah. Um, and I think it's uh, that agility and ability to react is what we'll we'll see us through um, through this current crisis. So uh, you and and again, I think it's important that you can't. You know, it really does in, in these days sort of ring true that you can't let sort of uh, perfection or the aim for perfection uh, stop stop good things happening. So you can't, as a leader, be be bound and, and, and hamstrung by the fact you want to get everything to be perfect mm. um, when, when actually you've got to keep moving forward and you've got to keep addressing the issues as you can. Absolutely, because no one course of action is necessarily the right thing to uh, to do, is it? There's always um, it's essentially a learning process. Being a leader, isn't it? Um, no one decision is going to be the correct decision every single time. It's very much a learning process. No one leader is going to go into a role and get everything right, are they? Well, it certainly is a learning process in normal times, um, and I think it's a, an absolutely accelerated learning process at uh, current times with everything changing. So. Um, not only is there not one right answer, you know, the, 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 you know, there's, there's not one set of situations in a, in a given day, you know, as as things change, and, and clearly, you know, in the last week or two, things have changed uh, incredibly quickly in terms of the uncertainty and then, then the lockdown that we're all going through. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we've probably had a bit of stability over the last. Um, you know, week or so, because didn't since the lockdown, and we know the position we're in. Um, but going forward, I'm sure it will change again. You know, we've all got to keep mindful of, of, of how the outbreak is being controlled. And, you know, the, the as we come out of the lockdown, which we inevitably will, um, uh, how is that going to be uh, dealt with? Um, uh, and, you know, those changing circumstances, if we can find out what... <laughs> What's um, sorry? What is the, um, the the situation going to be going forward? Absolutely, and um, based on the experience that you've had, not just navigating this crisis, but also in the everyday running of um, Ridge and Partners, um, do you have any advice to offer leaders who may be um, facing difficult situations, or maybe even embarking on their first day in a leadership role? Um. I think from my perspective, one in a crisis such as this, one has to try and, in the, in the first instant, make sure that the business is on a stable footing. And in these particular circumstances, cash flow uh, and cash is absolutely critical. So um, make sure that the, the you know, as best you can, uh, the business is, is balanced on that in that perspective, and obviously that might mean that you need to, to look for all different types of funding that's available, um, uh, and and get yourself into a, into a solid and, and secure position. And then from then, it's actually looking at what the ideal objective is of where you want to be when you want when you come out of the um, uh, of the crisis. I think you can't spend too long focusing on the here and now. Um, you know, the here and now is, is, is what's happened and, and, and you've dealt with. What you've got to do is position yourself so that in, I don't know, August, September, October, the business you have and the shape of the business you have is ideal to take 
the business forward and take advantage of whatever situations you have and press ahead. So it's about, if you like, looking at the, the horizon and, and getting the uh, the whole thing set up in the right direction at that point, which is sometimes challenging when there's a whole bunch of problems on the day to day. But, you know, you've got, a, as a leader, I think you've also got to look forward. Absolutely. And um, of course, you talk about uh, the, the need to look forward um, as a leader. It's um, of huge importance and it's um, integral to um, the style of some uh, leaders, um, I suppose. Um, what would you say are the have been the influences on your own style of leadership, Adrian? Um, uh, you know, that's a really tough one. But I don't know, if Scott, if you know my, my backstory is, you know, unusually in, in, in today's world, if you like, I, I joined Ridge and Partners. Um, uh, as a year out graduate from uh, from from university, um, so I've been with the company thirty years and gone through it. So I've never had the, uh, the opportunity to, to work under other other leaders and so. Um, it is a case of just kind of as you go through piecing together little bits and pieces of, of advice that you can see and experiences. I had an opportunity to work with some great clients, which is fantastic. So you you do uh, get to understand their business and developing. Um, projects for them uh, just give you an insight but I suppose I don't have one one focus in that it's just a yeah, combination of all the influences that have happened to, to me over the last 30 years Absolutely and I, quite a lot of people uh, do um, say when asked about some of their key influences who's influenced them that they do talk about business colleagues people who've mentored them over the years people who essentially aren't in the public eye typically when one thinks of a leadership figure you can instantly you think of politicians you think of sports personalities celebrities those sorts of individuals and quite often good examples of effective leadership particularly at the business level can go under the radar as it were um with that in mind adrian do you think that good and effective leadership is as celebrated as much as it should be in the uk uh, probably not, because now you've mentioned that, you know, I look back to the, the partners and the senior partners when I first joined Ridge, um, and they, you know, did have an absolute huge influence on me, and, you know, they're not in the public eye, they're not, not famous people, and I'm fortunate enough that I can still, even though they've retired for many years, I can still call upon them and see them, which is a brilliant position to be in. Um, but, yeah, no, I think, you know, I would always back UK PLC and the leaders within it to to take us through any you know crisis or any any situation. So I'm I'm confident that you know the leaders in in the UK will take us through it. We will develop a thriving economy. We will find the solutions. You know, we come out of this uh, current crisis, and there's no doubt in my mind we'll be in a different world. You know, people will learn to do things differently. You know, environmentally, uh, commercially, officers. I mean, you know, a whole list of things will have changed, and we'll come out of it differently. And I think uh, I'm very confident that the leaders in the UK, UK PLC, has got the talent um, to take us through it and generate a, a great economy, economy going forward. So, absolutely, I back I back UK PLC against anyone. Sure, and um, like I say, there's, there's a lot. There are a lot of positives to uh, to take forward from this. It is changing times, and hopefully, of course, um, we'll see some upward trajectory in um, regards to the economy, but also that feeling of national unity that's now manifested going forward from here as well. Um, I am conscious of running out of time, Adrian, but before we do wrap things up, um, do you give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months is going to hold for yourself and for Ridge and what you hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond the end of the outbreak as well? Yeah, I think, you know, we'll get to the end of the outbreak. It will happen. Um, I think, you know, we're, we're, we're focused on the construction industry. 
Um, I think there's the construction industry will split into two things. There'll be some parts of it that will accelerate quite quickly, quickly and need to develop projects. Um, there'll be other parts, probably more commercially, which will be a little bit uh, reticent and take a little bit of time to get back onto its feet and have the confidence to press ahead. Um, I think what we've got to do is we've got to position ourselves to um, stabilise the situation within Ridge, um, you know, recover from the shock that we've all had. Um, which uh, I think we will do. I think um, our design teams would then need to start looking at this sort of changing world that I, uh, I've mentioned and recognise that the built environment will be different, the drivers in the built environment will be different. Um, and we need to uh, kind of react positively. We need to be agile in our thinking. Uh, we need to be entrepreneurial in supporting our clients. Um, and I think, you know, over the last few years, we've had a great, trajectory of growth within Ridge and I think um, we should get back to it I think we need to get back on the front foot um, and I think we would need to want to have that positivity that surrounds us um, going forward because I think we've got a great set of clients um, great influences within, within the British industry and I think you know, we can support them to, to, to take it forward I think the next shock as you see as soon as we come out of um, COVID-19 is we go straight into, into Brexit um, 2021, whatever it's going to be called, mm. um, and you know, again, as an industry, we've got to react to that. We've got to. I think there'll be a lot of lessons learned going through what we've done. Um, but I think we've just got to get ourselves in the shape to take that forward. So I don't, you know, I don't think we should have fears. I think we should be positive, um, and I think we should get back to that position of growth. Absolutely, and let's hope that business uh, can very much. Uh get off on the uh, the front foot as you say and really take this um, in their stride once we do get out of the other side and start seeing that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, Adrian I have to say it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the programme today and I'd actually Thank love you. to um, get you back on in a few months just to look at this retrospectively and see how things have uh, panned out. So thanks so much uh, for coming on to the programme. I look forward to it. Thank you very much Scott. Absolutely fine. Thank you. Um, Next up on the programme, we hand over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England cricket legend Sir Andrew Strauss. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Sir Andrew. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know... And you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dreskothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? Um, well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Viscothi who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. Of and then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So, it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel- relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people. And this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsex bef- you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped m- me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day basis my wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, just in terms of, because I, th- I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm-hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international yes. cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because you know i think it's easy to forget how 
how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it's it just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived as well a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, as you were lucky enough, privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that that was a big part of it for me. Um, You know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership – I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing 
a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda and... You know, if and when that happens, that that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with, with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them, and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Okay. Yes. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they. Uh, they'll feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some or whatever it might you might term to to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you. And they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of cricket at the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was, or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And... Were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept it on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. It's quite a radical shift from what we, 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 what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. Yeah. And the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in, in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky... Uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan, who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincies have done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it, a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves. Mm. And often, you know, in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who again might not have given cricket a second look who have now become avid cricket fans I know of some it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be yeah it was an incredible day wasn't it I mean I think in our vision like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of you know emotion that went with it mm. no one could have dreamt no, uh, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I. Yeah. Actually, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become an inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis to help them and their families prepare themselves for death mm. and so in order to do that we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it it's not something people like to do i was very lucky that ruth wanted to do it um but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby, like how we're preparing you for the, how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death, even though we're all going to experience it in one shape, way, shape or form. And, um, you know, we, I think as a society we need to be better than that. We, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health. And we can do better about death. There's no doubt about it. Well, I think the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken. Um, uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about Think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again. So that was an incredible day for us it, last year. You could, you, Whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support, you know, it's probably it was just I myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way. You know, we felt so much uh, love and support there. And then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the, the funds raised. And um, we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing, not just the, the day at Lords. Um, I even saw some of the stuffiest members of the MCC, Andrew, wearing, re uh, wearing red. So it w w what an extraordinary thing. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway, no, I think. But um, <laughs> no, it, absolutely. Yeah. No, they, they were right behind us. And, um, you know, we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the English summer, uh, just like the McGrath Foundation days yes. in, in Sydney and Australia. Well, it's been a complete inspiration, um, and uh, I very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well. Absolutely. Um, before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. Andrew, I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown... Um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to, I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.